Stand with me if you would and take out your Bibles. Open to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Our sermon this morning will cover verses 6 through 10, but we're going to read verses 1 through 10 to make sure we have the context set from last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God has revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The sensory of God's word, and you may be seated. Let's go before the Lord in prayer once again. For the sake of our attention, Father, we pray in thanks, Lord, that we have been given your word. You're so gracious, so kind and good to us. May we never take for granted what is before us. May we be reminded where the power lies this morning and every day, the centerpiece of time, your Son, our Lord. Enable me the ability to communicate this, your glorious truth, to your people. Sanctify us by way of your truth this day, for Christ's sake. Amen. The Corinthians, um, not unlike many Americans, that is many American Christians, um, have lost sight of the fact that there is a fundamental antithesis between the way the world thinks and the way that we are to think. There's a vast contrast between the worldview of this present age and the worldview of God's word, of God's revelation. The only thing that they are is incompatible. And any attempt to integrate them, to synergize or join them together is to obscure, if not outright lose sight of, the wisdom of God. Paul is dealing with two very distinct perspectives on wisdom. This is something, of course, James deals with in James chapter 3. Wisdom that is from above and wisdom that is from below. 
Wisdom from above is righteous and peaceable, we read in James. Wisdom from below is earthly and natural. One is divine and spiritual, the other demonic and carnal. Which means that the wisdom of God will never, ever be esteemed by the world. The great paradox laid out by Paul is what the world regards as wisdom has and always will be foolishness in the presence of Almighty God. Always. And what the world regards as foolishness is the same message God reveals as wisdom and power, his wisdom and power. The world sees as foolishness. To those being saved, it is the power of God. That is, Jesus Christ and him crucified is the wisdom and power of God. For it is written, chapter 1, verse 18, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside, says the Lord. Um, The Corinthians taking the wisdom of their day, the, the Sophia, the Hellenistic philosophy, along with the polished rhetoric of their culture, were trying to integrate it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reminded as we were last time that classic rhetoric was not truth-driven, but results-driven. Much like the political rhetoric of our day, it is results-driven. Political rhetoric works to draw on the emotions of people in order to change their opinions. The aim? Emotional manipulation in order to get people to think in politically correct terms. Now, the sought-after speakers of their day, the sophists, the rhetoricians, the ear-ticklers, is what the Corinthians wanted reflected in the preaching of the church of Jesus Christ. And in Paul's absence, they had come to love that method. You see, that was power to them. which was nothing more than high-sounding insight with precious little content. As D.A. Carson points out, those who pursue this kind of eloquence are often doing little more than preening their own feathers. End of quote. Because at the heart of worldly wisdom is pride, the stoking of one's own ego. You know, I'm embarrassed for professing Christians, professing Christians who adopt the nonsense that is being peddled by the world, trying to appear astute, trying to appear intellectual and philosophical, my hope is that they come to their senses. According to 2 Timothy 2.25, if perhaps, 
if perhaps, we read, God may grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, the one who peddles worldly wisdom. Now, from man's beginning, beloved, he has sought for secret wisdom. From the beginning, but always in the wrong way. I mean, recall the conversation between the serpent and Eve. Right? We read the glorious truth in Genesis chapter 2 that the Lord God, he commanded the man. Look at it. It says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Genesis chapter 3. The serpent arrives on scene and he says to the woman, you surely will not die. Okay, verse 5. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. In other words, God is holding out on you. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The last part of that verse strikes me. Notice. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. I often think about women who are taken by false teachers in our day, and those who I know who have Christian husbands, I ask, where on earth is the husband? Come to find out, he's just aloof. No backbone. And here's Adam with her husband. So all that being said, um, from Genesis 3, um, Upward and onward to our present day, man has been and will be seeking access to wisdom, to knowledge, and to meaning, pursuing it in several erroneous ways. Some through for the philosophy of men, looking out. Others through astrology, looking up, the stargazers. You have those who... Um, look to transcendental meditation, looking within. That's always a mistake. And then those who go by way of hallucinogenic drugs, looking all over the place. And I say that with a serious tone, not a joking tone. I've seen it ruin people's lives. Looking at for and seeking secret wisdom. And their lives are destroyed. Now, throughout history, mankind, by one failed attempt after another, has failed in laboring to attach themselves to secret wisdom, secret knowledge, through Gnosticism, mysticism, perhaps esotericism, some kind of enlightenment, some way, somehow, both ancient and modern pursuits to tap into the secret of the universe. Surprisingly, this passage 
is claiming very plainly that there really is secret and hidden wisdom. Notice, God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God. Verse 7. There is an understanding. There, there is a knowing of truth, writes the Apostle Paul by way of divine inspiration, that there is wisdom to be embraced that is beyond the ordinary, beyond the natural capacity of man. And it does not come by way of numerology, astrology, or Kabbalah. This wisdom comes by one and only one means. Right here in the text. Not discoverable by mere human means. This is supernatural. Supernatural wisdom. That's the simple title of the message this morning. Now, Paul has been clearly and boldly explaining the impotence and the arrogance of worldly wisdom, reminding these Corinthian believers that when he came preaching to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, he, look at it, verse 4, he says, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. From chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 2 and verse 5, <clears throat> this has been his argument. And here in verse 6, it's though Paul pauses and says, notice, verse 6, yet, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Literally, wisdom we speak among the mature. So here now is a turning point in Paul's argument, the theme of which carries through to verse 16. And if you'll notice, in verses 1 through 4, Paul is speaking in the first person singular. And then, beginning in verse 6, running through the rest of the chapter, he adopts the second person plural. We. We preach. We speak. Now, Paul could mean, you know, himself along with the other apostles, but most likely he's just referring to faithful gospel preachers to whom, by God, who, to whom God by his spirit has revealed the truth that Paul has been preaching. That this is not the invention of men. The gospel of Jesus Christ come to us. It comes through us with power. As I said last week and the week before, you ever want to nullify the power of God? Preach another gospel. Add something to the gospel, and you nullify God's power. We do speak wisdom among those who are mature, teleos, complete. So I think, I think Paul refers here to those who are regenerate. They are complete in Christ Jesus. A wisdom, however, he says, is not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are what? They're passing away. This is grand wisdom. This is secret wisdom. Paul says, I speak a wisdom that is not connected to the wisdom of this world. This comes from above. 
Because there is a contrast between the testimony of God and the testimony of men. There is a contrast between that which is divine and that which is human. What is non-Christian and Christian. Now remember, the Corinthians think that they're incredibly wise. Paul is going to show them what true wisdom is. The Corinthians think they're super spiritual. Paul is going to show them what true spirituality is. The Corinthians think they are mature. Paul will demonstrate what true maturity is. So here in this section, um, one expositor says, Paul takes up major catchwords. Major catchwords which had been embedded in the life of the church at Corinth, words like wisdom, mature, spiritual. To reclaim those terms, he goes on to say, for the gospel, by redefining them in the light of God and the gospel itself. It's easy to get off track, thinking we are also wise, adopting worldly philosophy. So here in verses 6 through 9, Paul teaches us, he points out the origin of true wisdom. That'll be our focus for this morning. He'll go on to show us um, the revelation of true wisdom in verses 10 through 13. And then in verses 14 to 16, we see who the, the recipients of true wisdom are. So we'll stick to the origin here this morning, and we'll touch um, lightly on the revelation of true wisdom, which we'll delve into more deeply next Lord's Day. So then, contending, verse 4, that my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Verse 6, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Now, the mature here in this verse is not referring to those advanced in spiritual understanding um, as opposed to those who are infants in Christ. Now, he will talk about that when he gets to chapter 3. I mean, I think all of us know that there are Christians who've been believers for 20, 30, 40 years, and they are still, unfortunately, not able to digest the deep truths of God. They can't even sit under expositional preaching. All they can handle is milk. That's true. That's not what's going on here. He'll address that elsewhere. The context here is king. Okay? And the mature here is referring quite simply to those who have God's spirit. They've embraced God's wisdom. They are recipients of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's addressing the church of Christ at Corinth. Believers. So, to a people who think themselves to be so wise, so mature, Paul makes use of one of their favorite terms, teleos. This is a term they think defines them. But he'll define it in much different terms than, than they're expecting. So in other words, this is not a compliment. It's kind of a backhanded slap. He's basically saying, listen to what the nature of true wisdom and maturity is, church at Corinth. Remember, under cultural pressure in Corinth, 
a very well-to-do society. They're trying to dress the gospel in the garb of their culture. They are trying, by way of fallen human wisdom, to package the gospel, which always redefines the gospel. And that is not unlike the majority of American evangelicalism. They are addicted to this. Trying to take the wisdom of God and dress it in the garb of the wisdom of man. An attempt to take the message of God's, God's word, his holy word, and clothe it in relevant worldly terms. To dress it, you know, in modern apparel. The moment you try to dress the wisdom of God with the wisdom of this age, which is utter folly, you end up losing the message that comes from God, Jesus Christ and him crucified. You lose it. It goes to the background at best. Remember, the eye of the needle is the cross of Jesus Christ through which all the promises of God come to us. It's through the cross. I do not need to try and make the truth of God relevant, beloved. Amen? It's always relevant throughout the ages. We do not need to try to create a cool atmosphere. The only cool we want here is the AC running that we're blessed to have, by the way. One Presbyterian theologian of the 1800s said this. He was talking about the history of preaching. He says, in the history of preaching, there are three distinct stages that you see repeating itself over and over. There is the golden age of biblical biblical preaching. That is scriptural truth in spiritual garb. But then when the church becomes enamored with wanting to be accepted by the world, we begin to preach scriptural truth in worldly garb. And then the final stage is nothing but worldly truth in worldly garb, end of quote. Great example of this. Photo sent to me this week from one of our deacons. He was outside of a church in San Diego, and he took a photo of their marquee, you know, the little billboard in front of the church, okay? And each sentence is in a different color of the rainbow, okay? Said this, in this congregation, we believe... Love is love. Climate change is real. No human being is illegal. Women's rights are human rights. All genders are whole, holy, and good. What does that sign display? Empty deception. Empty deception, worldly principles on parade, and not Jesus Christ. Which means it is not a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a church of the politically correct soundbite. It's not the church of Jesus Christ. Thus the warning to the church of Jesus Christ. Look at it, Colossians 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive, that is no one kidnaps you, through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to, to Christ. 
Why the warning? Quite simply, because when you traverse that road, you forget where the power is. You forget where the wisdom is, that which is from above. It's not the wisdom of this age. It's always centered in Christ and him crucified. That's God's wisdom. That's God's power. It's foolishness, though, to those who are what? Chapter 1, verse 18. Perishing. Now remember, once again, Paul specified in his preaching Christ as having been crucified, verse 2, because the Corinthians wanted to move away from the scandalous message of the cross. It was despised to speak of the cross in their day. Never in polite company do you speak about crucifixion. So it had become somewhat of an embarrassment for them. In their minds, they were moving on to deeper wisdom, greater spiritual things. You know, they were triumphal spiritualists. Yes, Paul, we understand the cross is there. Um, It's in the background. We get it. Paul says, no, 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 no. It's front and center. And Paul takes the subject of Jesus Christ and him crucified, and he lays it right in the middle of the table. Verse 6, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. He'll refer to them again in verse 8. Now, some take rulers of this age as um, demonic powers. Again, context is king. The rulers of this age, if we look at all the scripture, have to do with human rulers, meaning the top people, the best people, the brightest, most noble and powerful people, those in particular who have great power and authority over others. Scripture bears this out. Look at Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us, away from the Father, away from his anointed Son. That is quoted in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 to 27, applied to Herod, Pilate, the Sanhedrin, and those who crucified our Lord Jesus Christ, rulers of this world. The same fulfillment is described in Acts 13, verse 7, back to 1 Corinthians. But we, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Now, mystery is not mysticism. It's not something mysterious, like playing clue, who done it. It's not that kind of mystery. Mystery here is something that was hidden that needed to be revealed in order to be understood, fully and completely understood. God's wisdom is the message of the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified, and until the coming of Christ, God's wisdom was hidden in type and shadow. Throughout the Old Testament, it was hidden in type and shadow. 
So rather than this truth being kept from God's people, as the word secret seems to imply, um, as Paul put it in our opening reading, Galatians chapter, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time came, what? God sent forth his son. Wisdom personified, revealed. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Concealed until the fullness of time. This is what he's talking about. Predestined, notice, before the ages to our glory. Our, who's the hour he refers to? The church in Corinth. Believers here, present today. Predestined, this wisdom predestined before the ages to our glory, that is to our eternal blessing. It is God's wisdom that we speak a message that brings about eternal life and therefore eternal blessing for who? Those who have been called. Turn back to chapter one. Chapter one, verse two. Those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Verse nine, to you who were called into fellowship with Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 24, to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks. Verse 26, chapter 1, to these misled Corinthians. Corinthians, consider your calling, brethren. The called. Chapter 2, verse 7, God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. What a great reminder. How gentle is this beloved brother Paul to these saints who are so, so off course? To our glory, God's salvation in Christ. This has been God's eternal plan, beloved, before the foundation of the world. The cross was not plan B. It's his only plan. The entirety of all creation, beloved, points to Jesus Christ. All of creation, everything points to Christ. When you get up in the morning, you see the sunrise, Jesus Christ, you're reminded, is the light of the world. When you get hungry, is my, one of my grandchildren comes running out in the morning, my body hurts, my body hurts, meaning his stomach, he needs to be fed. Every time we're reminded that our body hurts, we need to be fed, we're reminded Jesus Christ is the bread of life. Every time you're thirsty here in this hot summer and you take a drink of water, he is living water. He is the I am. I am that I am. Everything points to Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God. The world has no wisdom in and of itself. We don't mesh the wisdom of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You get a different gospel. This, notice, is for our glory. In other words, the Son of God became a man so that we could in turn become sons of God in Christ, the God-man. That's wisdom. That's amazing grace. A participation for us in the majesty and splendor of God. God predestined this wisdom. Isn't it beautiful? For your glory. Friends, are you suffering this morning? Are you in turmoil this morning? Have you been tried and tried again? One trial after another in your life. Take heart. 
The present sufferings of this age do not compare to the glory that will be revealed. Romans 8.18. The best is yet to come for those who are in Christ. That's the wisdom of God and it's to our glory for those who are in Christ. We will enjoy such beauty and satisfaction in the world to come that the best things that this world has to offer now, it'll all be put to shame. So if you think that, oh, heaven is just sitting on a cloud somewhere playing a harp, think again. Everything, the best of what you experience in this life will be put to shame in the new heaven and the new earth. So rejoice in your trials and troubles, beloved, with that in mind. I know it's tough. I know it's tough. We all have them. Verse 8, this wisdom, which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had known, that's an unreal condition. Had they known. Describing here the divine irony that as they sought out and succeeded in killing the Messiah, not a pretended Messiah, but God, Yahweh's Messiah, they put Jesus to death, incarnate God, wisdom personified. They put him to death. While they did it, they were in fact carrying out the preordained will of God in their ignorance. Had they known, they would, have not, would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Acts 2, verse 23, Jesus the Nazarene, we read, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross, Peter preaches, by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, left to themselves, these leaders... The leaders of that day, rulers of the world in that day, could not in any way consider or understand a gospel centered in a scandalous cross? Such an offense. They could not conceive of God in human flesh, the mystery of God revealed in Christ. They couldn't conceive this truth. That is God's righteous substitute for sinners in a human body. They could not. In John 12, we read that they would not, and they would not, therefore they could not. Hardened in unbelief. Question. What is the fundamental religious principle of modern America? Quite simply, non-Christians, for the most part, assume that good people in the end will be rewarded and the really bad, bad people will be punished. Why do they think that way? Because they believe in meritorious salvation. God must grade on a curve. I'm good. I'm not the best, but I'm pretty good. And when I die, I'll go to heaven. That's what most non-believers think. Therefore, therefore, a crucified Savior is a contradiction to someone who thinks that they're basically a good person. Absolute contradiction. Foolishness. To have a Savior that's been crucified. And then Jesus becomes what? 
just a pattern for ethics to be followed. Flee to him. He's, he's your only hope. He's savior. And here, human wisdom is destroyed. Again, verse eight, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood. If they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That, that is the most heinous crime ever committed by men. And if the rulers of the world are ignorant participants in the execution, the purpose and the plan of God, then what does that tell us about God? We serve a God who is categorically sovereign over absolutely everything, even the lives of his enemies. Absolutely sovereign. So let me ask you, are you gripped by anxiety? When you watch the news and you think, what on earth is going to unfold in the next 10 years? What about my grandchildren? What about your grandchildren? What is going to become of our grandchildren? Rest in the fact that God is absolutely sovereign over absolutely everything and everyone. Rest in that. I know it's hard. When you consider your loved ones who are not in Christ, we pray to a God who's sovereign. And if you're prompted to pray, you're not leading yourself to pray. God who is sovereign, the Holy Spirit, he leads you to pray. So you can rest in that. Wow, I'm praying a lot for so-and-so. Well, you're not brilliant enough to come up with that idea. He leads you to do that. Amen? So rest and rejoice in the fact that he prompts you to pray unceasingly for this, that, or the other person. And then perhaps you'll rest a little better at night. I preach to myself first. So while the enemies of God unwittingly sealed their own doom, they're fully culpable, by the way. Yes, God is sovereign, but his enemies, the rulers of this world who put Christ to death, they're fully culpable. Yet nevertheless, they also cooperated in the sovereign predetermined will of God to save God's elect. Those predestined before the ages for our glory, verse 7. Don't ask me how it works. It just works. And notice whose who's glory? He's talking to the church at Corinth. Our glory, Paul the apostle talks to fellow brothers and sisters for our glory. Who's that? The nobodies of this present world. The not many wise, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. The not many mighty, not many noble, at least according to the flesh. God has, however, indeed chosen the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world, to confound the wise. When does he confound the wise? at the eschaton, at the end of the age. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father Almighty. When someone comes to Christ, you know, some, I, used to, I did prison ministry for years. And I'd invite guys to come with me. They go, hey man, I've never been in jail and I don't know the language down there. I said, dude, the power's not in you. You don't have to go get all tattooed up to go into the prison. And then some feeble little old man, 90 years old, comes in on his cane and preaches, and there's dead silence in the chapel on the yard. 
with guys coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The power's in the gospel, not the messenger. The power's in the message, so don't mess with the message, Corinth. That's the message. I didn't come with eloquence, the sophistry of the day, the polished rhetoric of the day. I came and I preached Christ crucified. That's the power and wisdom of God. Just as Christ was humiliated before he was exalted, we too will suffer humiliation before our exaltation. Amen? So you don't need to wonder, why am I suffering persecution every time I talk about Jesus? That's why. If the master suffered, so will we. For the righteous message of God. Verse 9, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, he is not describing here the wonderful, blissful things of heaven. Wonderful things to consider nevertheless, amen. The formula here, it is written, is usually used to indicate a direct citation from the Old Testament. And we saw something that was likely a paraphrase of uh, you know, Isaiah 64 for our reading from earlier this morning. And this would you know, allude to other parts of the Old Testament as well. And all this is really doing, friends, is underscoring man's inability to understand the mystery of Almighty God, to understand fully and completely God's ways without God's grace. You cannot, by mere human means, begin to understand with the eyes, with the ears, or with the heart, so to speak, the mysteries of God. And that is the full and final revelation of God, who is Jesus Christ and him crucified. A mystery in Isaiah's time. All that God has prepared, all that God has preordained is unavailable to mere intuition, friends. Human reason, wisdom, empirical research, you don't pick up these glorious truths by way of the five senses, amen. That's his point. You cannot hear it. You cannot see it naturally. It is unavailable. This is not something that is internal. The gospel comes to us. It's not in us. It comes down to us, and the resident presence of the Holy Spirit enlivens us within to understand it, to see it. It's grace. This is what Paul's reminding these people about, the wisdom of God. You don't just pick this up along the way. And friends, young people, just because your parents are Christian doesn't mean you automatically pick it up. Be warned. Don't assume that you're in just because mom and dad are in. This revelatory truth must be made manifest to you within by a supernatural worker. It's outside of us. This must be revealed. This is the supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 10. For to us, us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. In other words, mere intellectual persuasion does not save people. You can't argue someone into the kingdom. 
Saving faith is produced by the heart-changing power of God the Holy Spirit as the gospel is proclaimed. That's why we preach the whole counsel of God here because this is where his power lies, right here in his truth. So let me ask, why are we so surprised that when we share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, unbelievers look at us like we're idiots? Because you can't grasp it naturally. It's foolishness to the world who is what? Perishing. Takes the supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit. That's why we continue to pray. We preach the same message. You don't have to doctor it up. You don't have to dress it in the garb of culture. Just preach Christ and him crucified. He saves sinners. He's the only one who saves sinners. He's the only one who can save sinners. This is God's plan preordained before the foundation of the earth. This is the wisdom and power of God. You could preach that a thousand times to the same person and they're dead is a doornail. And then one day, life. Don't change the message. So having told them now, and, and he, he, he's telling us where true wisdom comes from, Paul will proceed in more detail to tell us how it comes to us next time. The wisdom of God is the message of the cross. When that message is preached, the Spirit of God goes to work. He demonstrates his power. That is the power of God. He takes unbelievers and he turns them into believers. This is what he reminds the Corinthians of. They've been stupefied by worldly wisdom. This takes the regenerating work of God the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit's work of illumination, you will never understand the Bible in a saving way. There are men referred to as liberal scholars, scholarly-minded individuals who do not believe redemptive history. They have not embraced Jesus Christ by faith. They do not believe its message they know it inside and out. They don't believe it. This takes the word of God, the Spirit. So if we see the gospel of Jesus Christ, it has nothing to do with our brilliance. We are not brilliant. We are recipients of grace. This has everything to do with the Spirit of God, says Paul. And again, as I said earlier, this is why we preach the way we preach. Friends, let me close with this. You do not need political philosophy. You do not need a call for social action. You do not need Sundays to be a commentary on the latest news. If that's what you're hoping for and groping for and you call yourself a Christian, you need to repent today. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the worldview of this present age the worldview of God's word, they are incompatible. They were incompatible then. They're incompatible today. They will be incompatible until Christ returns. Always incompatible. Wisdom proper to this age arises out, out of and is marked by rebellion against God, Psalm 2. So why buy into it? Subject yourself to governing authorities as we're called to do. Pray for your leaders as we're called to do. But don't adopt the messages of the day and try to intertwine them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't work.
you compromise the gospel. Don't do that, he says to the Corinthians. Perhaps you're here this morning and this is like, wow, brand new news. And perhaps the Holy Spirit's prompting you and working in you, and you at this point of your life are saying, man, I want to start following this one true God. And perhaps you're doing, as Spurgeon once said, considering 50 things that you must now do to follow him. There's only one thing necessary. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So may all fellow Christians here today be encouraged and reminded where the wisdom and power of God lies, and that's in the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Anyone outside the faith, come unto me, he said. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I, Jesus said, will give you rest. Come unto me. And wisdom will be shown to you through me by way of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these reminders. Thank you that we, we see how easy it is to fall prey to the wisdom of the world to where your truth becomes eclipsed. Or in some of our lives for a season, it just absolutely disappears because we've so grieved the Spirit. We've so quenched the Spirit. May we not do so. Help us, enliven us, refresh us in the truth of the gospel today um, not to fall prey to the wiles of the day, the philosophies of men, the traditions of men, or anything that is not according to Christ. Refresh us in this truth today, we pray, for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.